Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. We're going to continue our study today in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. We're making our way through this Gospel, which in many respects continues to challenge us. Even the things that may not challenge us so much in terms of our difficulty, maybe in adhering to them, it just challenges our thinking. The Gospel of Matthew forces us to think differently about things. It continues to reveal to us that God's ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, that uh, we being a fallen people, uh, when we are saved, when we surrender our lives to Christ, it begins a process of setting us apart, of sanctification, of changing the way that we think, of changing the way that we see things. And we see that over and over again here in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we encounter some of those things, we do find, I think oftentimes, that it is hard. There are things that we are called to. There's things that, that where our thinking is challenged. And, and when we're confronted when, with it, when we're faced with it, we think, boy, that's difficult. That's not the easy way to do something. It's uh, Mark Twain who was quoted as saying this. He said, it ain't the stuff in the Bible I don't understand that's hard for me. It's the stuff I do understand. And I think that's very fitting. It's when we come to a right understanding of what scripture has to say that we find ourselves often going, that's hard. It's hard to do that. What we've been considering over the past couple of weeks through our study is really about the grace that is demonstrated toward us. And so this this unmerited favor that we are shown by a, a holy, righteous, and loving God, but as we understand His grace more and more, because trust me, we, we, no matter how much you have an understanding of God's grace towards you, you, you haven't seen it all. You just haven't. We, we cannot fully know the grace that's been shown to us, but as we continue to understand some of it, it should, first and foremost, it should totally blow our minds. It should cause us to think, Lord, how good you are that you would be so kind towards me. But then as we begin to have greater understanding of that kindness towards us, it should motivate us to then show that grace towards others as well. Paul David Tripp asks the question, if you look into the mirror of God's word and see someone in need of grace, why would you then be impatient with others who share that same need? It's a wonderful question to ask ourselves. We often say the forgiven should be forgiving. That's what we're called to as believers. Why do we struggle with that? Oftentimes it's because we've convinced ourselves that we deserve something, right? That we, that we uh, deserve grace because we've been wronged or we've been offended. But as we convince ourselves quite often of the grace that we might deserve, we must ask ourselves, do we? Do we really deserve that? Because by definition, grace is not deserved. It's undeserved. And we'll continue in this vein with our study today as, as Jesus here in, in his word gives us insight then into our relationships with one another, um, challenges our, our pride, uh, challenges us to see how great God's grace is and what we should do in light of it. Now, remember, as we get back into the word here this morning, here in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has left the Galilee region. It's where he had spent much of his time, his ministry, and he's making his way toward Jerusalem. So Jerusalem 
And along with that, the cross of the crucifixion is in view for Jesus. And along the way, he encounters Pharisees. Uh, This was in our study from this past week. Pharisees who uh, seek to trap him in a question. But to no surprise, Jesus easily navigates his way through their questioning, really leaving their heads and our heads even spinning a bit as he takes cultural norms and cultural understandings and he turns them on their heads. He takes things like we considered last week and, and the ease, say for example, the ease of divorce that we see even in our culture today, and he flips it around. He causes you to look at it differently. He causes us to see relationships like that between a husband and a wife through his eyes to understand that it's a picture of something much greater than we ever make it. And now, as Jesus is still amongst the multitudes, we're, we're coming to a place here where little children will be brought to him. But as we, as we look at this, as we consider now even little children being brought to him, it's yet another example of how uh, God looks at things differently than we do. And really, as we go all the way back, even in our study of Matthew, all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, consider Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and what we learned there early on. This is what Jesus has been doing. He's taking the way we understand things and and He's saying, this is the way that I see it. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's way of of doing it. And in so doing, it's intended to help us as followers of Jesus to realign our thinking to His to learn to see things His way, not our own way. Even if we look back just a few chapters, in chapter 17 we read of Jesus' transfiguration there on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a demonstration of, a revealing of His glory for just a few of His disciples. And, And in that, Jesus really conveys that He is powerful, that He is the Son of God, that that it's about Him, that the church is about Him, that He is the greatest, that He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But even in His greatness, as they come down from the mountain, Jesus begins to communicate again to His disciples that no matter how great He is, that He is going to die that He is going to make His way to Jerusalem, and that goes against all of our senses, that someone so great, someone so powerful would lay down their life for some who are so insignificant. And so you see, it's it's this continual understanding that, that God does things differently. And then even along the way, as He begins to tell of how He's going to suffer and to die, they then encounter the collectors of the temple tax. And they ask the disciples, was your teacher going to pay the temple tax? And Jesus continues to communicate. He says to them, essentially, I don't need to pay it. That's my father's house. Why would I have to pay such a tax? The son doesn't pay a tax to the king. But Jesus here says, nevertheless, unless we offend, I'll go ahead and pay it. Continued act of humility after act of humility. And then, even as this is progressing here, we know the disciples missing the lesson in all of this, begin to argue amongst themselves as to how great they are. And Jesus interrupts that conversation, that line of thinking, and says to them, no, you're not great. There's nothing in you that is great. He gives them the picture of a child. He brings a child into their presence and He says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you come to Me like a child in humility and in dependence, complete dependence. He challenges them to be like a child. 
And then as we begin to understand that, that those who come to Christ are children of God and that we're to come to him in that humility and in that dependence, then we must continue to then think about our lives and how our lives affect other people to be thoughtful and disciplined about the sin in our lives so that we don't affect the body of Christ, so that we don't lead others astray. We begin to be very focused on making sure we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And as we do that, we begin to demonstrate and have great concern for one another, caring for each other, laying our lives down for one another, leaving the 99 as it were and going after the one. Jesus says this is, this is the way, this is the, the kingdom of heaven. As he begins to then talk also about forgiveness and restoration, going to great lengths to, to, uh, to regain relationships that maybe were, were broken, giving us a process for how we're to go about doing that, taking that then even into the marriage relationship that even when there's offense, even when there's biblical allowance for a divorce, that God's desire is that we would, God's desire is for something greater, that there would be forgiveness, that there would be restoration, that there would be reconciliation. Even when it's seemingly justified that we would do differently, that we would forgive and of course, this is hard because offenses are personal, because they hurt, because in our flesh we long for justice and we long for fairness. But such is the way of the kingdom of heaven. And we don't, un we don't fully understand that way. Our hearts need to be changed. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's teaching and explaining this new and different way. And it's building. It's building to a place where not long from where He is now, He's going to be seated there with His disciples around a table on the eve of His, of his suffering and crucifixion. And He's going to tell them, I've longed for this point. It's been building to this point. And He's going to start to explain to them there is a new covenant, a new way. It's all building to that. And so here he's explaining this new and different way, and that continues really here as we consider the rest of 19 into 20. Let's go ahead and pick up here in verse 13. It says, Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So again here, Jesus is correcting understandings about the kingdom of heaven. And, and these little children who the disciples want to refuse, they, want, they, they, they said, no, they can't, they can't come to Jesus. Why? Well, because from the disciples' perspectives, they're, they're insignificant, they're annoying, they're troublesome. They're of no value to them and to their kingdom work as they see it. But Jesus says, let them through. Now, it should be noted here, whoever the parents are of these children, they're good parents. For trying to bring their children to Jesus. And when you're younger, you don't necessarily always like going to church. But a parent who says that their kids were going to church, just listen, they love you. And they're doing the right thing. They're doing a good thing because they want to bring you to Jesus. And, and, and for the disciples here, it wasn't that long ago that they had gotten a lesson about children. That, that they were to be like children and how they come to Jesus. But here now, they're seeking to, 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 to sort of reject these kids. And so you see, lest we get stuck on this point for too long, what we must understand here that's going to begin to unfold is that the, the disciples wanted to reject the ones that Jesus wanted to receive. Right? 
It gives us insight into their way of thinking because children for them uh, had no apparent significance, uh, at least for a time they would grow. I mean, children they knew they wanted children, but for now, just a nuisance. But Jesus receives them. In verse 16, he says, Behold, one came, or excuse me, Jesus receives them there. We see that he, he blesses them. He allows them to come to him. And then we begin to see another scenario then in verse 16 as it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus allows the children to come to him, even though the disciples didn't want them to. He blesses them. He prays for them. Then they begin to move on their way. And now someone else comes to Jesus. Now notice here, this young man, who we will see is rich and has an uh, aspect of authority, uh, he approaches Jesus unhindered. He's able to come right up to Jesus. The disciples don't seek to stop this man. The disciples then resisted those who Jesus received, and they received those who, as we will see, Jesus essentially rejects. Again, it's different than the way that we see things. In verse 17, so he said to him, why do you call me good? This young man had come to Jesus and he said to him, good teacher. Uh, the, the gospel of Mark gives us a little more insight, suggests that this man comes and essentially throws himself at Jesus' feet, that he's on his knees before him. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus, not saying that he wasn't good, Jesus doesn't declare here that he's not good, but he takes the opportunity to ensure that this man understands that salvation comes through dependence on God alone who is good and not man. Jesus not fully, you know, you know here it's not apparent, I should say, whether this man truly understands who Jesus is, right? Is he just coming to him because he's a good teacher? Is he coming to him because he thinks him to be a good man? Jesus here is pointing him to God. God is good. And then he directs him back to the law. He takes him back to the commandments. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us insight into that in his own life, recognizing that the law serves as a schoolmaster unto sin. The law is for, the law is for us a teacher. It helps to reveal our sin. Oftentimes, when you're in an evangelistic encounter with someone and you begin to ask them what they know about Jesus and probably the most important question that you pose to them, which is, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? It's a wonderful way to discern whether someone truly has a great understanding of their need for Jesus and in fact believes in him. So oftentimes you ask somebody that question. You say, can I ask you the most important question that anyone would ever ask you? Well, sure. And they brace themselves for, that's, you know, that's really a big deal if somebody's going to ask that type of a question. And you ask that. You say, if you die tonight, are you going to go to heaven, and he heaven or hell? And oftentimes, again, if it's a person who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're going to hymn and haw for a moment, and then they're going to say, well, I hope heaven. And you say, well, why would you hope that? And they'd say, well, I'm a pretty good person. We're all pretty good at convincing ourselves that we're a pretty good person. And isn't God a forgiving God? Right? And so this is the way that it typically goes with people. And how do you help people to understand where they're at? How do you help people to understand their need for forgiveness? Well, people have to understand that they are, in fact, not good. That they are sinners in need of forgiveness. And how do you do that? Well, you bring them face to face with God's law. Have you ever committed adultery? Nope, nope, never, never done that. Have you ever looked at a woman to lust after her in your heart? Well, perhaps, okay? All right, well, then you're guilty of God's law by his standard. Have you ever stolen anything? No, I've never stolen anything. Never anything, regardless of its value, even the smallest thing that wasn't yours. Well, maybe I've stolen something before, I suppose. Yeah, okay. 
Have you ever committed murder? No way I've not committed murder. I've never do such a thing. Have you ever hated anybody? Well, yeah, I suppose I have before. Well, God says if you've ever hated anybody in your heart, you're guilty of, of murder. And so that's just three of God's commandments. And by your own admission, you're an adulterous, murderous thief. Do you still think you're good enough to get into heaven? Well, since you put it that way, maybe not. But that's the wonderful thing about the gospel is so many people want to suggest that, see, that's exactly what Christianity is. It's all condemnation. No, it's not. Because in that moment you say, see, you recognize that there's no way for you to be good, for you to stand before a holy and righteous God and say, I'm, I'm good, you should let me into heaven. No, what you need is a Savior. And praise God, he's done that for you. He gave you Jesus Christ, his one and only son, who willingly came to this earth and died for you whose blood was shed for you that you might be covered, that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the righteous blood of Jesus Christ that covers you. You see, it's important for us to consider God's law. And here Jesus directs this young man back to God's law and asks him, have you kept these things? And he said to him, verse 18, which ones, which commandments? It's an eager young man here. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And why exactly Jesus chose these, we don't know for sure. Some speculate. No doubt there was purpose in it. Jesus knew what he was asking this man. Maybe it was just to draw him in a bit further, to set the stage for something else. What we do note here, though, is this young man is pretty confident in his performance thus far. As he says in verse 20, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus here doesn't bother to go through with correcting his understanding of each of those commandments. And certainly we see here that this young man thinks that he can just do these different things and come to Jesus with this mindset of almost earning salvation. I've, I've done all these things. I've checked all those boxes. What else? What else do I need to do? You see, this young man, convinced by his own successes in life believes that he can essentially earn salvation. What else do I need to do? And while Jesus seems to be allowing this line of reasoning here for a moment, we, of course, knowing that you cannot earn salvation, and that will be made clear through the rest of the chapter into chapter 20, Jesus just continues in this conversation, setting this young man up to see that there is something not so much that he must do as much as there is something that is serving as an obstacle in his life that he's not yet considered. And so Jesus says to him in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, that is complete, if you want to be in right relationship, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, Jesus knew with this young man who was very wealthy, he understood what would keep this man from truly following after him. And so while he asked him of some of the other commandments, he brings it down to this point here. You need to go and you need to sell all you have. Are you willing to do that to follow me? And it's important for us to consider here the fact that Jesus does not make a habit out of telling everyone to sell everything that they have. Jesus does not require every follower to be free of any possession. We know that because as we see throughout Scripture, even the disciples uh, still had possessions. Peter uh, still had a home. He still had a wife. Some of the disciples still had fishing boats that they returned to uh, after Jesus' death, um, before his uh, resurrection. And so here what, we're, what we see is that uh, 
this is something that he's specifically asking of, of this man. And we've got to be careful we don't swing the pendulum too much here because uh, we can take it to the end to say that no Christian should ever have a possession again. And some people have attempted to suggest that, but that's not consistent with Scripture. But at the same time, we ought to be careful that we don't take it the other direction and say, well, this is just, a, this is just an exhortation to this man and not to me if you're one who is truly held and even possessed by your own possessions. Jesus was speaking to this man and he asks this man if he's willing, if he's willing to let go of these things to follow him. And so what it is that Jesus does ask of us, though he doesn't require every follower to be free of any possession, what he does do, what he does require is that every follower, every believer would be free of that which possesses them. Jesus expects surrender he expects us to let go of the things that have a hold on us. And for this man, it was his stuff. It was the material things of this world. As you see in verse 22, it says, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. When this man came to Jesus, eager and seemingly humble before Jesus, one might think, this is great. What an opportunity here. Even, even more so in our uh, day and age today, right? If somebody comes to you, if you out and you just feel like, man, I want to go out and I want to witness, I want to share Christ with people, I want to fulfill the Great Commission, and you know that a lot of times it requires a somewhat awkward conversation as you seek to bring people to that, the, 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 the point of the, the spiritual, right? And you begin to ask them what they know about Jesus or what, however the Lord leads you in that conversation. It can be kind of tough. It can be kind of tense sometimes, right? It can be awkward. And so when someone comes to you and says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to be saved? You've got to be thinking, this is awesome, right? This doesn't happen every day. And I can tell you that if, and, and, and something like this has happened to me before, where it's just like God just drops this conversation in your lap, typically what we're inclined to do, what I'm sure the disciples would want to do in this moment, what I would want to do, is to say, well, great, this is what you do. Believe on Jesus Christ, pray this prayer, you're good. Right? So often that's what happens, but that's not what Jesus does here. Because Jesus wants to make sure that this man first counts the cost. What this boils down to is that we must count the cost of following Jesus and far too few actually do. Might I add specifically in this country. We are all too acquainted with this idea that we can come to Jesus and then just keep on keeping on with our regular life only now Jesus is just right by our side. And that's much of what the church has sort of uh, perpetuated in our culture today. Whereas elsewhere around the world where we're seeing incredible revival happen, the people that are coming to Christ are the ones who know that if I do and when I do, it might mean my life. It might cost me my life. And it's likely to cost me my job and my home and my family and so praise God as we've considered this so often here lately for the, the, the times of peace that we have enjoyed in this country and the religious freedom that we have enjoyed, but in many ways it has made us soft. And far too many people then come to Jesus because of a, a, a wonderful presentation of a gospel, yes, but then this idea that I can just say yes and not have to really give up anything in my life. And oftentimes as well, 
What we convince ourselves of is that as a demonstration of His goodness and His grace and His power, that not only does our life need to change, but maybe with Jesus we can even have more success and more resources and more wealth. And though there's many churches today teaching that message, the fact is that's not supported in Scripture. It's nowhere in the New Testament. His provision is, yes. Absolutely, His care for you is, yes. The fact that He will take care of every need that you have, yes. But health and wealth and all things prosperity is not promised in Scripture. That's an Old Testament concept that's been adopted and tried to fit into a new covenant. And and this is what we must understand. It brings us to our first lesson for the day is this. What Jesus requires of us is complete surrender and dependence on Him. That's it. As we believe on Him as as the Lord of our lives, as we recognize that He came and He died for us, as we recognize that we are sinners and we repent of that, and we believe on Jesus Christ, yes, we do so, but we do so with with an understanding that I'm giving you my life. Not just, oh, I gave my life to Christ. No, I laid my life on the altar. I said, it's not my own anymore. It's yours. Whatever you want from me. And again, He may not say, sell all that you have and go away. He may not. You may be one of those people that he can say, you have such a wonderful heart, I'm going to continue to bless you because you give. And you give and you give and you give and you give. I know people like that. People, it blows my mind how generous they are. But what is it? What is it in your life that he's calling you to? We cannot come to Jesus based on a checklist, say a prayer and go back to living life how we want to live it. For this young man, it was clear he loved his possessions more than Jesus. And we must ask ourselves similarly, is there anything in my life that I love more than him? Because if we do, then that's sin. And we've got to deal with that. Remember, when we begin to understand God's word and what he calls us to, it becomes difficult. And so what is it in your life? Is it a dream, a goal, an aspiration? Is it material things? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Are you willing to let it go? Are you willing to say, Lord, I don't want anything to come between me and you. I trust you, Lord, with my life. In verse 23, Jesus then says to his disciples, he wants to make sure they understand, assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now here's the thing. Notice that Jesus does not specifically say here that it is hard for someone who is really attached to their possessions or material wealth. He says, no, it is hard for a rich man. Why is that important? Because I think a lot of times we can kind of convince ourselves that, hey, yeah, I, I got a lot, but I'm not attached to it. Right? I got a loose grip. It's okay. This isn't me. This doesn't apply to me. But when Jesus says it's hard for a rich man, that has to cause anybody who has a good bit of material wealth, and by the way, that's a lot more of us than probably what we'd want to recognize based off of today's standards, to have to really evaluate, am I too attached? Am I holding on too tightly? Because Jesus says it's hard for a rich man, period. Why? Because any amount of material wealth serves as a distraction in so many ways. I'm not saying it's bad, but it is a distraction. It creates dependencies in so many ways. I can remember when we were first married, Ashley and I first married, and we were working because we had, I don't even remember how much it was at the time. I want to say it was like $800. And it was like, it's a good start, right? And we're building this up and we're trying to like put away some money in savings. We got to a certain point and I'm like, hey, like this is good. We worked hard to build up this savings. We're, we're, we're okay now. And our, and our pastor at the time, Pastor Roger, was like, don't be surprised if God takes all of that from you. And sure enough, he did. Man, one thing hit and it was just like, it's gone. 
<laughs> what are we going to do? We're going to trust in the Lord to provide. And that began the process of God teaching us, don't trust in these things. Don't trust in riches. Trust in me. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. And so material wealth, it can be a distraction. It so often causes people to depend on themselves or depend on other things, right? And Jesus says then that becomes really hard. Not impossible, but hard to truly then give your life to him, to just totally hand it over. And so the statement he makes here may seem impossible, right? He says it's hard. We think, well, I I don't know. I've never seen a camel go through the eye of a needle before. That seems downright impossible, And by the way, there's some different opinions on this, that in fact there was a specific gate in Israel uh, that was called the eye of a needle and and because when a camel had to go through there and a rider was on top, they had to kind of duck down. And there doesn't seem to necessarily be evidence that that's the case, rather that Jesus is just simply saying here for the sake of giving an example that eye of a needle, camel through it, really hard, okay? And I think we kind of come up with those stories, again, ease our conscience a little bit to say, yeah, you know, you could do it. The the riders, they could do it. They could get through the gate. They just kind of had to crouch. Versus saying, like, no, this other way, I don't see how that could happen. Right? So here's the thing. Consider the context. Jesus, he receives the children, says, no, let them come to me. But the very guy that the disciples are probably like, yeah, let him in, right? This guy's going to be a great tither when he joins the group. Jesus is like, nope. Different thinking. Different way of looking at it needs to be our way of thinking, our way of looking at it. And so in verse 25 then, the disciples ask a pretty good question, saying when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. They're like, he just sent that guy away. Like he was, I mean, that guy was already on the hook. And so they're looking at Jesus and going, well, then who can be saved? How often, as of later, the disciples' minds being blown? Maybe yours as well, right? I mean, think back on it. Not that long ago, the whole idea of forgiveness laying your life down. I mean, just in complete humility, I forgive. And Peter says, how many times? <laughs> how many times are we talking? Seven? Seventy times seven. How about that? Right? Or, or regarding marriage. And Jesus saying, because of the hardness of your hearts, you're given to divorce for all these different reasons, but that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And so then they're thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't even get married then. Like all the ways in which Jesus is instructing them is causing them to think our life needs to look different than how it's looked. And now they're looking at this and going, how can anybody even be saved? Because remember for them, especially as they're watching this guy walk away sad, they're with Jesus, they're with the Messiah, they're making their way to Jerusalem. What are they expecting? Kingdom, right? Authority, power, glory. And that guy would have looked really awesome in our group, right? But it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a different type of authority. Jesus wanted them to understand. And so he looks to them in verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So lest they become overly discouraged here, he brings it back around to say, yeah, with men they can't be saved, but with God they can be. Anybody can be, whether it's a rich man or or anybody else, because it's God, it's the working of his Holy Spirit drawing individuals unto repentance that can cause somebody who is rich like that to say, I'll lay it down. But that's a work of God, not a work of man. It's about what God can do to change and transform hearts and minds. And that's why we've talked about this ad nauseum as of late as we've gone through this political divide that we've been through because so many people look to the politics to fix so many different things when in fact it's a work of God. 
It's God who transforms hearts and minds. It's the truth of the gospel that transforms hearts and minds. So don't be discouraged. Don't be overly concerned or worried about anything that may be going on in our world today or anything that may be going on in the political realm today because God is still on the throne. It's never been a work of man. It's always been a work of God. He's worked in your life, hasn't he? You, Christian, what did you lay aside? What did you lay down that you never thought you could? Again, relationships or addictions and and just different things, but God worked and you laid it down. And some things in your life, it was easier. There were certain things in my life when I came to Christ, it was just, it was gone. And I thought, praise the Lord. I don't know how that happened, but it's just gone. And then there were other things I was like, Lord, please take this. But then that was a process of sanctification as God was working and saying, I know, I know, but I'm with you and you're going to keep doing this. You're going to keep plugging away and you're going to learn some things. And some of the things that you're going to learn is just how weak and pathetic you are, right? But it's good because when you get there and when all that pride's gone, then you're going to go, man, God is good. God is great, right? I am nothing. There is no more pride. I'm, now I'm like a little child. I run to him and I'm just excited to see him and I know I need to be totally dependent on you. Because I have no strength, power, authority, anything in me. It's all you. You see, it's a wonderful thing when he brings us there, even though it's painful in the process. Now, Peter here is beginning to understand some of this. He's going, oh, okay, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I'm tracking now. And so then he says in verse 27, that Peter answered and said to him, oh, see, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Now, when I first look at this, I think to myself, Peter's kind of like a kid begging his parents when they get back from a trip, like, what'd you bring me? What'd you bring me? You know, like just expecting like, oh, there's something in this now for me. But as much as I want to give Peter a hard time here, the fact is Jesus obviously thinks this is kind of cool because he answers this question. I think here Jesus is recognizing like, you know what? You have. You have left a lot to follow me. And so Jesus said to them in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that incredible? For these men at this point, this started to get real. They're starting to get some insight now into there really is a a role, a position for us in his kingdom, not fully knowing when the kingdom will come, how it will come. But here's a promise, and there's a promise for us too, that we will return with him in glory, that we will be a part of this, Christian. And he goes on to say in verse 29, and everyone, now that includes us, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And of course, the implication there is that we are leaving some of those things behind. It may not be every one of those things, but the fact of the matter is there may be some of you sitting here in this room right now, you're leaving a relationship behind to follow Jesus. You're leaving something behind. You've counted the cost, but you know that He is greater. And oftentimes when that happens, though there is a promise of eternal life, though there is a promise of an inheritance that we don't even yet fully understand that is still yet coming, there are also ways in which God delivers on this promise even here and now. For those of you who maybe have left family behind, there's, there's, there's rejection, there's, there's, there's a, a, a severing of certain relationships that when you come into a biblical, healthy community, a body of Christ, you do regain brothers and sisters. You gain a, a home. The fact of the matter is, I think it was John Corson I once heard say that you know, he now knows that, that if there were anything that was going on in, in his life, if his, if his house burned down today, that there's a hundred other houses that he'd be welcomed into. You see, God does make good on those promises. 
And so while the disciples do not yet fully understand what this kingdom will be like and when it will come, they've been encouraged that there is something for them. We can be encouraged that He restores a hundredfold. But the, the question should be asked, are you willing to leave? It's not that we advocate for it. It's not that you need to go out there today and just go, hey family, I'm done with you because I need to leave you behind. And they're going, wait, what happened? But it's the fact of, of what are you faced with? What is it that you're still holding on to that may be preventing you from truly knowing and walking with Christ the way that He wants you to that you've been unwilling to say, I'm not going to let this go. Can you trust Him? Can you trust Him with it? Because you see, even for Jesus in this, in this young ruler, Jesus didn't say, sell all that you have and make your life miserable. No, he said, I'll give you treasures in heaven. He said, I'm going to give you something better. Would you trust me with it? And so he says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so again, for us, once again, the kingdom of heaven, the way of Jesus, his perspective, his thoughts, they are different than our own. Our way says the first are first. The last are last, because that's what's fair, and that's what makes sense, and that's the way that it's got to be, because if I'm first and I cross that finish line first, I worked hardest for it, and I want the gold medal. Not the person in third, that wouldn't make sense, right? It goes against everything that we, we think and we feel, but Jesus is saying, no, it's the other way around. And really, as he says this, that sets up then this parable that he shares in chapter 20, and we'll move through this quickly, so don't worry. In verse 1, follow along with me here in chapter 20, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he's going and he's hiring day laborers. He goes into the marketplace. Hey, do you guys need some work today? Come to my vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's a day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. In verse 3, and he went out again about the third hour. So he went out uh, at about 6 a.m., got people to come work in the vineyard. He goes out again. It's 9 a.m. and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He says to them, you also go to the vineyard. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour. This is noon. And then the ninth hour, three o'clock, and did likewise. And then about the eleventh hour, that's five o'clock. He went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. And so here, throughout the day, the master of the vineyard, who is God, has been continuously going out and finding people. Right? He's still doing it today. Still drawing people into His vineyard today. And when He does, He employs them into His service so that they are about the harvest as well. And so th here these workers are coming. That's you and me, Christian. And we're doing gospel work. People are getting saved and then they're beginning to fulfill the Great Commission. Exalt, equip, engage. They've come to an understanding of who He is to know Him and to worship Him. They're equipped through the teaching of the Word and then they go out, outside the walls of the church building and they engage the community. That's what's happening here and so all throughout the day God's doing this he's bringing different people and, and and so there were eager and willing workers at the very beginning of the day folks who've been saved all their lives you know you might be one of those people man I grew up in the church I've always been in the church I've always loved Jesus I serve I've just done all these things you're there all day active right living your life for the glory of the Lord and then throughout the day more come toward the end of the day some people are coming, and it's clear they were the ones who, you know, nobody, nobody picked them to do the job at the beginning of the day, maybe, okay? Maybe they weren't there. Maybe they were slacking off a little bit. They were late to arrive to the market. Maybe they'd been out drinking the night before, living a bit of a raucous life, right? But now they come to the place saying, hey, I'm ready to, ready to shape up and do some work. God brings them in. Their lives may not have been all together, but here they are now. They're coming in. 
They make their way. In verse 8, it says, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers, give them their wages, beginning with the last first. Last to the first, excuse me. And in verse 9, And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, okay, that's about 5 o'clock. Everybody knows what happens at 5 o'clock, right? It's quitting time. These people just got there. And he says they, they each received a denarius, a whole day's wage. In verse 10, but when the first came, the ones who'd been there all day, they supposed that they would receive more. So they're seeing this happen. These guys just showed up and they get a full day's wage. Oh man, it's about to be our payday. And then they get the same pay. And when they had received it, verse 11, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. You see, it's not hard for us when we look at this to see the inequity in this, is it? Under no circumstances, I challenge any one of you, under no circumstances in the workplace would you be content with this type of setup, with this type of concept, because our flesh cries out against it, right? That this isn't right. Why? Because it's unfair. It's just not. I worked all day. You told me I'd get this much. They haven't done anything. Some of you are thinking of somebody in the workplace, right? You're like, oh yeah, that's like so-and-so. They never do anything. And you see, this brings us back to the beginning and the point of why Jesus is telling the parable to begin with. Because God does not operate the way that we do. And we've got to stop suggesting that He does or pretending that He does or trying to fit Him into our way of thinking because the kingdom of heaven is different. His ways are different. The fact is, yes, if you're the full day laborer there and, he said, and you said you're going to pay me a denarius, well, He did. He did exactly what He said He was going to do. Right? Verse 13, but he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? You see, they were giving the stink eye to people. It was the evil eye back then, right? They're looking at people like, mm, I don't know about this. In verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Jesus says the last will be first, and the first will be last. And we say, well, this isn't right, or this isn't fair. Friends, we must be glad that God isn't fair based on our standards. That He doesn't give us what we deserve. And that's the point. Jesus is changing the way that they think. He's trying to set these men up for what they're going to do. Because in some cases, right, they were going to go to the <gasps> Gentiles. No, we can't give the gospel to them, right? I mean, think about what these men were going to have to, what they were going to have to do, who they were going to begin taking the gospel to. And Jesus is trying to help them understand my way's different. And I want you to love me with your whole heart with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything in you, I want you to love me. And when you do that, it will pour forth from within you and you'll be able to love your neighbor the way you love yourself. But there's so much of that that's missing in the church today. And when I say in the church, it, it, the implication there is us. Because we're so focused on us and the way that we do things and the way that we think we should do things and the way the world tells us to do things, not the way that he does. And we've got to get our thinking back straight again, focused on him what Jesus wants us to understand here is more of God's grace. He wants us to grasp His grace. 
D.A. Carson says it this way, rather bluntly, of fairness and of God's grace, asking the question, do you really want nothing but totally effective, instantaneous justice? Is that what you want? Because a lot of people are very quick to say yes. And to that, D.A. Carson replies, then go to hell. It's heavy, right? But you see, God does the complete opposite in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because he is God, this is two lessons today. This is your second one. Because he is God, the master of the vineyard, he can dispense his resources, his mercy and grace, however he pleases. And the fact is, though it may not align with and and even at times contradict the senses of our own fallen nature, we are not to begrudge him for doing so. Rather, for us, what he desires is that we develop a greater appreciation for his abundant mercy and grace shown to us as individuals so that we can then celebrate it when it's demonstrated towards others and even more so that we would love others as ourselves because we recognize that we are all recipients of his grace, that we all need it. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close this out in song, and I I got on my soapbox Wednesday night, so I'll try not to go there again. But guys, I'm increasingly saddened by the comments that I'm seeing Christians make, hearing them make, seeing them make. I don't care how much of an enemy the person may seem to be to you, how contrary they may seem in terms of their beliefs and their actions, You, as a follower of Jesus Christ, made in the image of God, under no circumstances, have the permission to represent the church or to represent Christ through your sarcastic comments, through your demeaning comments. You don't. And it's so easy to make them this way. Because most of the time, people aren't doing it like this. Let's catch ourselves in that and remember, as believers, who we're representing Ask yourself before you make the comment, before you type the comment, before you say it. And listen, I'm talking to myself here too. Not so much that I type the comments, but that I say them even. Ask yourself, is this going to bring glory to Jesus Christ? Is this going to glorify his name? We don't know the hearts of all men. Only God does. But throughout history, there's been some pretty incredible testimonies of people who have gotten radically saved, right? People who absolutely were considered enemies, vicious and vile who at some point came to the understanding that they would spend an eternity in hell. They didn't surrender their lives to Christ. And so some of those very people you're going to spend eternity with, worshiping God together, let's start treating them like it now, right? To be winsome in our approach, to be all things to all people, if you don't take that verse out of context, right? But in such a way that we might win many to Christ, right? And let's consider here as we close the greatest demonstration of the first, last, and the last first. As Jesus, from ending this parable, says, as Matthew writes, now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day, he will rise again. What we must understand there is that the true first, 
the one who is considered the firstborn over all creation, that is the one who has the rights, the one who has the authority, the one who possesses the inheritance, the one who has uh, all things, who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, says, I'm going to die. I'm going to put myself last. I'm going to humble myself so that you might be first. The recipients then of that great inheritance, of that heavenly reward. When we know that, when we truly rest in that, when we, when we understand that, man, that changes how we see everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, once again for your word. You exalt it above your own name. And so we're grateful, Lord, here this morning that we can hold it within our hands and we can study it, that by your spirit we have understanding. And Lord, it may be difficult at times, but help us to apply it to our lives. Lord, may we be a people who truly love well who understand, Lord, that we must come to you in absolute surrender, letting go of anything in our lives that we're holding so dearly to or things that may be holding on to us, letting it go, coming to you in submission and trusting you, Lord, to then work and to move, to dispense your grace and mercy however you see fit and for us to simply know that we are recipients of it. And so because of that, we ought to show it to others, that we, in fact, are a forgiven people who have been forgiven much and so help us, Lord, to forgive others to represent you well in our interactions with all people. Father, we love you, we praise you, we give you thanks here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.